This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Type. I'm Alifair Burke. This is Sarah Peretsky. This is Laura McHugh. This is Alex Segura. This is Ace Atkins. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. You know what? That's an interesting question, Eric. Ooh, good question. This is Meg Gardner, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, back again with three writers. Uh, well, four, actually, but three books. So, uh, yes, I'm starting with a pair of co-writers. But before that, I hope everyone out there is staying safe, wearing a mask, and taking steps to keep distanced and do your part to help end the spread of coronavirus. We are all in this together, after all. And I hope you're doing your book shopping at indie bookstores during this quarantine time. They really need your help and they ship just like that big online behemoth. So it's just as convenient. You have no excuses. So check out your local indie or some of the great mystery and crime bookshops all across America. All right, to my first guest or, or guests in this case, Smith Henderson and John Mark Smith just released their debut collaboration, Make Them Cry. This is a thriller about DEA agent Diane Harbaugh, who unravels a deep conspiracy at the heart of the drug war in the U.S. Now, Smith Henderson is also the author of Fourth of July Creek, a book that had the whole writer world buzzing and feeling a little jealous, frankly, when it came out a few years ago. And I spoke with Smith and John from their respective homes in Montana and Texas. Well, gentlemen, I love talking to co-writers because I have co-written uh, several novels myself and I enjoyed it very much. And yet I don't necessarily recommend it to other writers because it is fraught with pitfalls that a lot of people don't see coming until they're in the thick of it. What is it that you saw in each other that made you think, oh, yeah, this will be a good pairing? Um, got me. <laughs> It was a roll of the dice, huh? <laughs> no, um, we're we're really we were old and fast friends. I mean, our backgrounds aren't so similar, but I mean, I guess I guess one thing is we're both pretty progressive dudes in really red places. Uh, <laughs> but I I think we have just a similar um, sensibility about life and and Aristotelian commitment to to having a friendship be about shared activities more than just like common beliefs or background you know and so yeah. for us i think writing was a natural extension of our friendship john do you agree is, it, is he nailing it here yeah yeah i agree with all that i i also think um we also argue well we um are able to debate things and disagree and sometimes like seriously disagree without holding grudges or getting too angry or <laughs> uh, well we do yell at each other sometimes um but we're we're sort of able it's like it's kind of like sparring you know it, it's part of the it's part of the enterprise and i think both of us believe that art on on some level and life is very dialectical and you're able to create things based on conflict a lot of the time. So we don't see conflict as being a bad thing in the process. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That's such a huge element. That That's, that's great that you've had that. And you know, you also did it right in that you don't live in the same state. <laughs> I mean, the, the two people that I've co-written with, I, I also I did not live in the same state. One, one of whom like, the first book that we wrote together came out in 2009. I still have never met her. 
in person. <laughs> It, it's an, it was entirely like an email online uh, thing. So, but you guys, you guys at least knew each other face to face before this. Yeah, we did. Although there's been years where we didn't have to look at each other. <laughs> we have like a running rule: like you don't don't turn the camera on when we when we do chat because who wants to look? Yeah, you know, I don't. We don't want to look at each other. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we we have we've known each other for twenty years, so it's a relationship that goes back a pretty long ways. Well, so the result is this novel, "Make Them Cry." Uh, now, this is let's call it a full tilt thriller, it, and it exposes corruption and, and double dealings. And you know, it, it, this is the kind of book where it's like, I inherently I want to trust the DEA and the CIA and the people that are charged with keeping us safe, but then. You know, you read something like this and you combine it with the headlines that we see every day. It's hard not to be cynical, right? <laughs> or they're all just corrupt. I mean, our inspiration w- was um, maybe initially like some of those 70s thrillers that were post Watergate, very or middle of Watergate, which is very similar to kind of where we feel, you know, where we are now with respect to all, yeah. all of our institutions, um, especially our security apparatus, which has only gotten more massive. And so, so yeah, we have like a real, we tried to stay real clear eyed about what the realities are of how pervasive and this drug war in particular is, but it really is like, you know, the entire, you know, militarization of the police and the, the security state, you know? So yeah, we we have a pretty grim view of it i I think (laughs) but i mean i don't don't think you can be honest enough about this stuff you know the thing i would add to that is that i think both of us see the drug war itself as inherently corrupting you know it's not that all the individual actors are evil or are bad or that they have bad intentions or that they themselves are necessarily corrupt it's that the drug war which has been going on for 50 years now, since Nixon started it, it itself is the thing that has corrupted these institutions. It's had this just just gigantic impact. And in lots of ways, we don't think it's been written about enough. Yeah. Well, and when you enter into writing a thriller, I think especially in, like you say, in the world that we live in now, I mean, it's almost impossible to do it without getting a little bit political with it, right? Or if you want to have the stakes be that high anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, and and that's another thing. Smith and I are both very interested in in politics on both a macro and a micro level. So we don't see, you know, I, there, it's like it's impossible to write about CIA officers or people that are in the DEA without also on some level dealing with policy. So um, yeah, it's really important to us. Right. You unravel a lot of secrets in this book and and things that people are trying to still keep a secret. I mean, when you were sort of dropping all these things and and having all these revelations along the way to to, to keep the plot in motion, did you ever reach a point where you, where you said, okay, that that's enough, that, that's enough secrets, that's enough reveals, or were you always looking to add one more layer to to the plot that that she's uh, slowly unraveling? It's interesting because, like, I think um, I think in this case is weird as unusual it would normally be something like that you would you would think you know we're gonna we're gonna try and go for this this sort of target this is gonna be the the you know the moment where you face the dragon in the cave or whatever right you know um and uh for us this project is really um 
it might have it might it might be a little bit of mission creep like whatever the initial goal was <laughs> has been overcome by like the the that stuff we added and the things we built into it cuz you know originally at its core this was a really simple concept it was what would it look like if there was a company or a person whatever that supplied a, a sort of security slash insurance to criminal activities you could basically like buy insurance on a bank robbery or something you know what i mean right. um, you were covered if if it went sideways and as that idea evolved we we really had to think about well why would someone do that and why would criminals buy that service and what would that look like and as as we got deeper into it you know we were tasked with like building a world wherein that that sort of thing uh was feasible and the funny thing is, is like, you know, we ultimately kind of discovered that, of course, it's feasible, but it once you you have to involve state actors in it. But then beyond that, like, surely the United States has been involved with things beyond like Iran-Contra and letting uh, crack cocaine into the United States, you know? Right. Do you really think that like in Afghanistan, we weren't partnering with, you know, some pretty serious heroin dealers you know heroin right. like of course we were you know so at some point it was just like right that's how that's how that, this happens it's it's totally happening it's not even far-fetched yeah the, the suspension of disbelief you already had covered yeah <laughs> yeah if, if you're paying attention to the world around you, you you go oh yeah no this i could totally see this is happening yeah <laughs> so it's kind of horrifying too <laughs> While you're working on this and plotting it out, I mean, you guys, like I say, you're from different states, you're from different backgrounds. I mean, did you each bring something that was unique to the story from those different backgrounds? Like in, you know, like Smith, were you like, okay, I'll, I'll handle this part of it. I know about this. And then John, you're like, oh, great. I've, I know a lot about this side of it and, and sort of bring those two things together. Or were you very much of one mind when, when you delve into this thing on the big picture stuff we're definitely of we we're of one mind even though we disagree a lot we once we figure things out those those things well they stay in place until they stop working and then we've got to figure something else out um <laughs> but i think that on all the big picture stuff we split the duties um I do think we basically kind of divide up some of the research a little bit. So, like, I think I took most of the Mexican um, cartel stuff and Smith took most of the Afghanistan stuff. Does that seem right, right to you, Smith? Yeah. I don't know. Growing up in the mountains or whatever, I guess I felt like Afghanistan would be. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is you don't you don't get I, I don't I don't get into this this get this stuff, this work, this writing as a, as a means of pure romantic expression. I want to learn stuff, you know? And I think a lot of readers, especially readers of, of genre stuff are part of the, part of the kick of it is learning how learning something. I can't really like geek out on a Tom Clancy book at all, but some people love reading about aircraft carriers and they don't even, right. you know, they're just like, <laughs> but I think that the pleasure of writing and reading is often learning stuff, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think uh, there's thrillers are all always that great Trojan horse to be able to get some, some stuff in there that does sort of educate you or, or shine a light on something that might be hidden, uh, but, you know, wrapped up in an exciting plot where you're, I mean, in this case, you know, the, heroin is kind of always at the 
cusp of uh, things going very, very badly for her. And you, you root for her. You, you want to see her succeed. You want to see her unravel all this dirty dealings going on. So, yeah. you know, the, the, the thriller is kind of the, the perfect way to, to sneak some of that by. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. So uh, it sounds like uh, it certainly went well for you guys. The collaboration uh, was was something that worked as well or maybe even better than you expected. So uh, can we expect this to keep going? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're- yeah, yeah. We're, we're busy working on, you know, the next chapters. So, yeah, we're, we're, we hope it goes on. Great. And uh, I mean, what what do you think it would take for the whole thing to crumble? And you just would could not agree, or is that not even an option? You you would never get to a point where you couldn't write yourself out of it. Oh, I think we we just in terms of our own collaboration, as long as we keep talking to each other, we can definitely figure our way out of it. I don't I don't even think we've ever even hung up on each other, which is a little bit surprising. So. <laughs> My next guest this week is Heather Young, author of The Distant Dead. After her debut novel, The Lost Girls, was met with high critical and reader praise, she is back again with another thoughtful novel of mystery that has a real sense of place and setting. This is about a young boy who finds a body in the desert outside his small Nevada town, and that kicks off a mystery, which I mean, makes sense. This is a show about crime and mystery novels, right? So here's my conversation with Heather Young. Well, Heather, let's uh, go back and start with your first novel, The Lost Girls. Now, I'm always curious about first novels for people. Was this a product of years and years of work as you pursued a writing career? Or was this, you know, maybe novel five or six after a bunch of false starts? I mean, this was the start of a whole new career for you. So was The Lost Girls, you know, the culmination of a long journey or, or, or was it something different? It was the culmination of its own long journey, I think is probably the best way to, to put that. I had um, never seriously thought of being a writer until I was in my 40s, and I was looking for something to do, um, something new to do. I had been a lawyer in my 20s through to my mid-30s, and then I left the law practice to raise a couple of kids for 10 years. And then they were kind of getting to the point where they didn't need me quite as much, and I was thinking I would go back to the law. I didn't really want to do that. So what would I do? A friend of mine asked me, what was your favorite thing about being a lawyer? And I said, well, it was the writing. I loved writing legal briefs and and I've always liked every aspect of writing and every job I've ever done. And of course I love to read. So she said, well, what could you do if you could do anything? And I said, well, I guess I'd write a novel. And she said, well, go do that. So I said, okay. And I figured it would take me six months to a year, just bang one out and then sell it and sell the movie rights and we could all retire. (laughs) (laughs) And it took me almost eight years to write that book. So it was the only book I had written at that time. Well, then, then that is a success story. I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, I, I think more writers than not that I know write that first novel and then go, oh, I can do it. Now this goes in this drawer over here and no one will ever see it. Right. Well, I think I had gotten to the point where I was almost 50 when I was seven and a half years into this book. And so there was no putting it in a drawer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that, that makes sense. This is a good, good friend of yours to give you this life-changing advice. I do appreciate her for that. I mean, I, at the time, like during year four and year five, I was really quite peeved at her. <laughs> <laughs> but I read somewhere in around year two that only 4% of people 
who start a novel actually finish the novel. There are a lot of half-written novels out there in the world. Yes. So when I read that, I thought, well, you know what? Whatever happens, I'm going to be one of those 4%. So I'm just going to doggedly sit here and finish this book. Well, and so then Lost Girls comes out and it's so well received. I mean, that had to be extra gratifying, you know, after leaving a career that surely felt much more stable than the career of an author. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, everything that happened after I finished the book was just one surprise, pleasant surprise after another. I was very gratified at the end of all that. And it is nice after spending eight years on something to have it not be totally terrible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that would be good. So then your second novel, The Distant Dead, uh, becomes that all-important follow-up. You know, it's the band's second album, the the writer's second novel. It's always fraught with uh, fears and, and, oh my gosh, I hope I can do this again. I mean, was it in many ways a little bit harder than The Lost Girls, even if it didn't take quite as long? It was definitely harder. And at one point, my agent said, you know, my experience is that the second books are always the hardest books to write. And, you know, after climbing the mountain the first time around, I was like, what? I have to now climb an even bigger mountain. Right. But, um, <laughs> it was harder. And I think it was a combination of, A, I didn't know if I could do it again. Um, and B, having done it once, there were people who would read and liked the first book. And there's a set of expectations that you feel very heavily on your shoulders Will they like the second book? There's that added pressure. Um, There's time pressures that didn't exist with the first book. So there was a deadline associated with it that just Mm -hmm. about crushed me. There was a lot of anxiety and pressure that did not exist the first time around. And I coped with it in ways that I need to not do again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, does anxiety and pressure, I mean, it seems like maybe that would be the perfect thing to go into a a crime thriller. Uh, You know, is is there a way to, to utilize that to your benefit when you're writing this type of book? Probably there is. And I think maybe I did it without realizing it. But yes, I think all of my characters in this book are suffering from varying degrees of anxiety and pressure. (laughs) They may may be infused with the anxiety and pressure that I was feeling at the time. Yeah. It would be interesting to see like if any of the reviews uh, start to, you know, if they pick up like, boy, she really nailed the feeling of anxiety and (laughs) impending dread. (laughs) Characters are so miserable. I wonder what she's talking about. Well, now th- this book, uh, you know, centers around uh, this this body that the young boy finds. Uh, it turns out to be his old math teacher, and I- I'm sure that there are many writers out there who've daydreamed stories about an old math teacher ending up dead. But <laughs> you, you you portrayed in this in this very deep and poignant way that that really you know s- kicks off this story that that gets very you know, serious and dark. It's probably not the way I would depict an old teacher meeting their, <laughs> meeting their demise. I mean, when when you're plotting out books, are you starting with that inciting incident or do you start with the characters? Where where does the, the first thread start to come to you? So for me, the, the first inspiration tends to come from setting. Hmm. So the first book, um, I really couldn't, I mean, having decided to write a novel, I then found I couldn't come up with a story. And I wrestled with that for several months. What what can I, I need a story to write a book. Eventually, I thought, well, just try to find a place. Think of a place where a story could happen. And I, I thought about uh, a lake that my family used to visit in the summers when I was a kid. Very evocative place. Always seemed kind of haunted to a little kid. And so once I kind of imagined that place, then I could put a story there. That seemed to be the key to unlock the door. And with the second book as well, I found this little town of Lovelock, Nevada, 
while driving across Nevada to visit my parents in Boise. And that place was evocative for a bunch of different reasons. Just it's sheer bizarre but resilient existence out there in the desert in the middle of nowhere. Um, I carried that town around with me for a year and a half or more uh, until I kind of then a story grew out of that place. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I was curious about Lovelock. I, I, I didn't realize it was a real place. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm always curious about that kind of thing. Like, I, I think a lot of times, you know, writers put in characters and other people in their lives are thinking, oh, is that me? Is that, are she, is she secretly writing about me or someone in your family thinks, oh, that that's supposed to be, you know, my cousin Ernie or whatever. But I'm always curious if, if the the settings and places, you know, do, what the relationship they have to you. But so this is just something that you you visited once, stuck with you, and then ends up spinning out into this entire novel. That's that's really interesting. Yes, I did go back there and spend about a week to try to really get steeped in the in the sense of the place. And and the the, the prologue of the book uh, is a chapter that takes place fifteen thousand years in the past. And that was actually a writing exercise that I did to try to get myself rooted in the place. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, we'll just write about something that happened in that place way back in the mists of time, something that would maybe haunt it to this day. But that was part of the exercise of trying to get get myself mentally attuned to that environment. Yeah, that's always the way I, I find that too. Like if you... I'll think about something and I'll, I'll mull it over in my head and I'm not sure I'm ready to start, but then it is, it maybe it's, it's that the first line of a chapter or it's, you know, a line of dialogue that I feel like, okay, Oh, now I, now I know this character's voice. It does. It takes that one little hook to, to sink into you before you really feel like, okay, now I'm ready to go. Right. Absolutely. And I don't know if if this happens to you, but I'll be writing a book and some little line, usually pretty much in the beginning kind of pops out of the lizard part of your brain and you go, oh my God, that's the character right there. That yeah. that piece of dialogue or that nar- narrative observation—that's them in a nutshell. And yeah, that that's uh, that's so great when that happens. Oh yeah. Well, so now uh, I guess the next question is, uh, you know, we're both in California, where our, our skies have been smoky for a couple of weeks now. The the, the rest of the world, uh, even beyond our borders, seems to be falling apart. Does that inspire the the next work and the next work? Are you going to embrace the the world we're living in on the page, or do, are you looking to maybe leave it behind and just make up a whole new world where this doesn't exist? I, I am going to leave it behind. Uh, even before the fires, I had started the third book, which is set in a small town in Iowa in 1941 during World oh. War II. I found um, that writing books set in the present day presented problems I wasn't really, didn't really want to deal with. Um, just the problems of modernity, which I tend to try to read and write to escape were things I had to deal with in the writing of this book, cell phones and texts and Google and all that stuff. And, and it's, it's not that I'll never set a book in modern times again, but I'm glad to take a break from it and write a book set in a time when I, when I don't have to deal with those issues and don't have to deal with the fires and the smoke and the presidential election and COVID and all this stuff. I can just go somewhere else. Yeah, uh, I think that's smart because uh, I, I know as of uh, when I pick up a book to read, I want to be taken somewhere else, say, taken out of my my day to day, and yeah, just just to read about stuff that I can open my window and see outside. Yeah. Oh, that's no fun. <laughs> that is no fun. I actually, people who are writing books set now, I mean, 
I'm sure I will write that someday, but how do you write a book set in the modern times without at least alluding to the pandemic? It's going to be right. part of every story that's re- that's set in a realistic world going forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotta be. Yeah. Gotta be. Yeah. As someone, I, I was born in Iowa, spent uh, many years there. Uh, where, where in Iowa is, does this one take place? And is this someplace you visited as well? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm like an Iowan first, uh, second generation. But my mom grew up in Williamsburg and my dad grew up in West Liberty. And the town I'm writing about is based upon West Liberty. All right. Well, great. Uh, Heather, it was lovely to, to speak with you. Uh, I'm jealous that your first book got out there and, and was so successful and, and you didn't have to go through uh, the pain and torture of having all those books in a drawer. So <laughs> yeah. you're doing something right. <laughs> well, thank you. And it was a pleasure to be here and to talk with you, fellow Iowan and Californian. <laughs> There's so few of us, really. A few of us, indeed. My final guest this week is debut author Micah Nemerever, whose debut, These Violent Delights, is a story of obsession and first love that goes very dark with uh, shades of Patricia Highsmith uh, I saw in there. Uh, This novel has already landed on best of and most anticipated lists from Newsweek, O Magazine, The Philadelphia Inquirer, Electric Lit, and Paperback Paris, among others. So here's my chat with Micah. Well, These Violent Delights uh, is about Paul and Julian, whose relationship turns obsessive and and quite toxic, uh, let's say. That's an accurate description, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So, I mean, are there actual violent delights in in a new relationship that that borders on obsession? Because I think we can all agree, like you get into a relationship and it's that early days where you do, you want to spend all your time with somebody. it's, It's a little bit exciting in maybe a a slightly toxic way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, um, and I think especially, um, at least in my experience as, as a a queer teenager, um, you don't have a lot of models for, um, what your, what your identity can look like. Yeah. So, uh, one is sort of prone to to seeing of the same gender, like uh, somebody who seems really confident and really solid in their identity and just kind of latching on. I'm always interested in this this kind of relationship between wanting and wanting to be, which for Paul is definitely like at the crux of the relationship. Like he he, he loves Julian, but he also idolizes him. Yeah. And at absolute best, it, it can get toxic really fast yeah (laughs) well is there something that you think at the core of it that makes love and obsession so intertwined i think i think in this case it is it is the fact that it's sort of um paul's identity gets wrapped up in it really fast he he's he's sort of directionlessly ambitious he he wants to have an identity that leaves a mark on the world and um and is like solid and confident in a way that he just can't become on his own. It's, it's the fact that he's got Julian on this kind of pedestal and is very aware of his flaws, but sort of blames them on himself. I I think it's something people are definitely prone to in adolescence in particular, where the first love is just so 
all-consuming. Oh, yeah. Well, and and you alluded to something, too, that I think is very key to this, is that this relationship, it is pretty specific to this age, right? Yeah. I mean, at, the, at least at this stage in life, like you say, Paul, is he's still trying to figure something out. And then he gets into this thing where, you know, the, the worst part of it is probably the the power dynamic is so in Julian's favor so but yeah. that and I, and I do think you're right that at those especially those early relationships at this stage in life this kind of story could kind of only happen then this this couldn't take place between you know 250 year olds right yeah absolutely like i i feel that as toxic as the dynamic is between them things wouldn't have spiraled nearly out of control if they'd met at like 20 like yeah. it's very specifically, they're both in this this emotional place of sort of grasping for an identity in the way that adolescents do. It consumes them. What they this this thing they have between them, and it it, it takes on this level of importance that I I think I think you're especially vulnerable to at that point in life. So it there there wouldn't be a book if they'd met later. It's def, it's very much like. What it's like when you're 17. Um, I've, oh, yeah. One of those days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you couldn't pay me to be 17 again. <laughs> That's a rough age. Well, it's, look, as traumatic as it is for all of us, hopefully it didn't go this badly for you. <laughs> oh, no. I, I, um, I, I, had, I had some relationships that uh, we, we definitely sort of brought out the worst in each other, and it got it got unpleasant and there was interpersonal fallout but i'm pleased to report i've never killed a man so (laughs) teenagers don't they're missing a layer of skin and (laughs) have poor impulse control and it definitely like there there were moments when it made me kind of mean and clingy and just like so i i got this really intense glimpse of of this ugliness i i had the capacity for and was carrying inside myself and um and what I took from it in my own life is to work hard not to be that person. But with this story, what really compelled me about it is I, I could sort of process in retrospect these fears I had about myself and these fears about the meanness that I had in me and just ramp it up to a worst case scenario. Look, look, looking within, it sounds like, which, but uh, thank, thankfully, it seems like you learned some lessons from that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a, uh, it's, it's uh, a rough way to learn lessons. I think it's very <laughs> common. Like so many of my friends, um, when they read the book, were like, "Oh God, this was me, uh-huh. not as bad." But it's like, <laughs> yeah, I know so many people who had similar romantic friendships or fully romantic relationships that that were. Toxic and a less intense, but similar dynamic. I, that, you're scaring me now because I have a 14 year old, so I feel like I'm heading directly towards this minefield. <laughs> you know, I, I part part of it is I think um, giving teenagers like healthy models for identities, which I I, I had trouble with. I don't think everybody does it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. Let's hope not. Well, so it's a first novel. So congratulations on that. Always an exciting time. Thank I mean, you. as you're getting out now and, and talking about it and, and promoting it, is, is it a little surreal to start talking about, you know, Paul and Julian as if they're real people? It is. And it's um, they've it's interesting because they've been real to me for the better part of a decade because I've just 
I I could not finish a novel without being completely obsessed with it. Like like I I had my own obsession going while I was writing about this obsessive relationship. So they they have become like uh, extremely real people to me over the years. And it's 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 odd to me that they exist outside my own head now. Like it's very strange that other people are are forming their own relationships to them and taking different things from them than I do. It's it's part of the process, and it's something that I've grown from finding a little panic-inducing to finding really cool. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it, it, you've you've raised these two uh, to go out into the wider world, just like uh, you know, that's just what <laughs> child rearing is. <laughs> I know it's it's um yeah the the book is sort of my very upsetting baby. So. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love uh, a line in your bio that says you are an amateur historian of queer cinema. Uh, so I, I feel like I could qualify as an amateur historian of many genres. I, I, film is, is my background. So let's nice. talk about this for a little bit. I mean, are you interested in uh, sort of explicitly queer cinema, you know, like My Beautiful Laundrette, Boys Don't Cry, things like that? Or do you like digging into older films where they maybe had to hide things, but now with a critical eye, we can look back and see some of those uh, things hidden in plain sight. I'm really interested in sort of tracking um, the, the historical development between subtext and what, what filmmakers were able to get away with during the Hays Code and sort of how it evolved into queer voices coming to the foreground. I'm a huge film noir fan. And, you know, you get in a lot of discussions where like there, there are several examples of, you know, like there's Earl Holloman and Lee Van Cleef in the big combo these sort of you know, two gangster guys. And it goes, I feel like at the time it would have gone by completely unnoticed, but then you look back on it now and you're like, Oh, wait a minute. Both yeah. their relationship, their roommates, the things that they say that like some of the double entendres and it's like, Oh, my God, it's right there for all to see. <laughs> I know. It's always it's always fascinating to me the the studio response to Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, um, uh, because the the original play that it's based on was British, and so so a lot of the characters in the original script said things like "My dear boy," um, and so the studio was like, "Oh, we can't have that. It makes them sound gay," and then <laughs> but then like it's very overt in the in the film that these characters are in a relationship it's like they live in a one-bedroom apartment for one thing and it's like it's just, that's just kind of casually mentioned and nobody in the studio noticed that because they were hung up on the my, my dear boy thing yeah. and it's just it's it's so funny and I, I i think part of it is is hitchcock was hitchcock and could get away with these things but also the um the writing team and several of the actors were gay so Behind the scenes, it was very much a queer film that got away with a whole lot. And uh, I, I love that Farley Granger was in both of Hitchcock's queerest films because Strangers <laughs> on a Train, also also not subtle. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love what he was able to get away with. Now, you are also an avid cook. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, I, I took note of your recipe for brownies. So yes. uh, I'm going to print that out and try that. But uh, you can help maybe settle a dispute here because my wife and I have been at loggerheads for years uh, over the brownie thing. Where, where do you stand? Nuts or no nuts? Um, I am not a fan of walnuts, which seems to be the standard nut that goes into brownies. Um, it it's like the one 
not that I do not like. I could I could roll with pecans on a special occasion, but I just mm-hmm. I like I like the unadulterated chocolatiness of a nutless brownie. But I respect the other point of view. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. You've solved nothing. You, my, my wife uh, thinks that the fact that I want nuts in the brownies, she thinks it's pure heresy. Yeah, I, I, I come down on her side, but I, I'm not going to slam you for it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> there are times when I wonder if the marriage will survive. But <laughs> <laughs> how, how are you guys on, on in a chocolate chip cookies? Because I think it's absolute heresy to put nuts in a chocolate chip cookie. Oh, see, yeah, this is another big sticking point because I love it. I I, I like the <laughs> texture, and and I I agree. I, pecans are is would be my go to. I'm I'm of the strong opinion that there's nothing a walnut can do that a, a pecan can't do better. So <laughs> <laughs> that is that's a hill to die on. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Well, there you have it. Just like that, we're done. Three more books for you to check out. Now, I have one more episode before I take a fall hiatus. And next time, there will be three more author interviews as well as a fall book preview to completely fill your to-be-read list with some great titles that are coming up before the end of the year. Thanks, as always, for listening. And you can always check us out on Twitter at WriterTypes and always on our website at WriterTypesPodcast.com. And I'll speak with you next time. Thank you.